Hello and welcome to episode 2.6, the Eastern Standard Time edition of Notes from the Isle Seat, the podcast that covers the arts in northern Chautauqua County, sponsored by the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. My name is Tom Lachlan, and I'm your host as we bring you news and information about arts events at the Opera House and around the region, including interviews with artists and creators across the county. The return to standard time is always a monumental shift, and one that comes not without controversy. Personally, I wouldn't care whether we went full-time with standard time or daylight time. I just want to have one set time all year round. The plunge into sudden darkness with the return of Eastern Standard Time is always a bit of a shock. Me? I'd rather ease into the darkness rather than being pushed into it. There's still about an hour more left of daylight to lose before the winter solstice occurs, so I'd recommend you get out there and enjoy the morning light while it's still around. On Thursday, November 10th at 7 p.m., the Opera House will be screening a documentary entitled Underground Chautauqua, Three Freedom Trails. In doing my research for this interview, I was truly stunned at the degree to which the county was involved in transporting runaway slaves to freedom. Talking with Wendy Woodbury Strait, one of the five collaborators on this documentary, left me even more amazed. Well, I was not aware uh, when I began to look at this particular topic of how uh, interesting it was going to be. And so now I'm really pleased to have uh, Miss uh, Wendy Woodbury straight with me. She is one of the people responsible for this upcoming documentary on the Underground Railroad in Chautauqua County. Uh, Wendy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for inviting me. You bet. Now, um, I, I kind of don't even know where to start because uh, in doing my research, it, there was all of a sudden so much rattling around in my brain. But I, let's start with a few basic questions. Um, uh, it's a documentary, a video documentary that people will be coming to see. And can, can you give us a, a, a brief history of the video subject? Sure. The documentary takes uh, the audience on a, an aerial tour of Chautauqua County. And as they go, they'll learn in about 50 minutes what Doug Shepard learned in 15 years of research into the Underground Railroad. And basically everything that we were raised to believe is false, but the true story is far more interesting, and it's as tragic as it is rewarding. Wow. Um, uh, now, 
there was a team you put together uh, that uh, the documentary team put together. So it's not just you. There's a number of other people involved. Can you just give us a, an idea of who was involved? Yes, the team, the wonderful team included Nicholas Gunner and Sandra Liggins and Jennifer Hildebrand and Elijah Toro. And our trumpet music was performed and arranged for us by Todd Cutter uh, in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, Nick is the full stack developer for his company, Orbitist. And Sandra and Jennifer are both at SUNY Fredonia, and they have together taught the Underground Railroad course there. And Elijah grew up in this area and in Rochester, and he is with Optimax in East Rochester. Yeah, I know all of them except uh, uh, Elijah, and uh, they're all, I, I think their contributions are going to be uh, very substantial. I know Nick, for example, just loves doing video and drone shots and all of that kind of stuff. So I imagine the aerial shots are really going to be something very interesting. Well, the um, that's that's an interesting part of the story because the the aerial shots come from a map that Nick created. Mm -hmm. And what happened was um, we had found enough information by the time of the county bicentennial in 2011 to make an underground railroad map for the uh, county bicentennial history fair that Michelle Henry put together. Dolores Thompson asked us to make this map. And when Nick saw it, he said, I can create an interactive map for you. So he did. And from 2013 on, Doug populated that map from 60 known people to over 1,100 now. Yeah, it's it's an incredible map. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but because um, I was just fascinated by that map. But let's first... Um, uh, pay a little homage to uh, uh, Dr. Doug Shepard's contribution. He was a professor emeritus of English at SUNY Fredonia, um, retired just a little bit, a few years before I got there. And his contribution is substantial, to say the least. It's amazing. He taught literary research at SUNY Fredonia. And after he retired, that was in the mid 80s, he spent 30 years doing research himself. And it was mostly through the Barker Library and Museum in Fredonia. And the first thing he did was to read and study the and, and index the entire Fredonia Censor newspaper. It had just been microfilmed and almost everything is there from the early 19th century until the 1960s when the newspaper ceased publishing. And, and that's just extraordinary and, and meticulous work. How, how did he get involved specifically? Do you know in the, in the uh, abolitionist movement and the Underground Railroad? Yes, he had um, always been approached through the museum about the stories of tunnels and, and hidden rooms, et cetera. And in his research, he had found no documentation for such things. But when Dolores Thompson and her group in Jamestown uh, did research in preparation for the beautiful um, tableau for the Underground Railroad that's in Dow Park across from the Prendergast Library, they asked Doug to join them 
in looking for more evidence here in the North County. And so in Dow Park now, where there's the beautiful sculpture of Catherine Harris, um, we can say that that's the beginning of Doug's research too. And we were lucky because at the same time, Paul Leone researched and republished the memoir of Eber Pettit, who was a conductor and station master in the North County. And also the County Historical Society put all of the records of Judge Foote online. He was a leading abolitionist here in this county. So that gave Doug more names. And several records were simultaneously found in churches and in the National Archives by a researcher from SUNY Oswego. She had sent everything to Doug so that he could compare Chautauqua County findings from the National Archives with what he'd found here. And it was, it was incredible to notice that the people were matching up. People who were on record here were also found on record on petitions in the National Archives. So now Doug not only had a, a map of places, he had a map of interconnected people. Wow, and, and, and that, that map is astounding. Um, again, I, I, I wanna get to the map, I really do, but, I, but before I do that, the title of the movie is Three Freedom Trails, and apparently there were three trail systems in the Underground Railroad, am I correct about that? That is, that is what we have deduced based on the findings so far, because uh, putting all of that research together indicates that there were networks involved, involving uh, trails that made a spider web, but they seem to be on either side of Chautauqua Lake and along the lake shore. Those seem to be the three systems, and they seem to have come from Corey, Pennsylvania, and Warren, Pennsylvania, and from Erie, Pennsylvania. It, it was so dangerous, and people had to be escorted. And for a long time, we couldn't figure out how that worked, because there were no vehicles. The weather was never good. There were very few plank roads. It was extremely dangerous to take a boat of any kind. And there were not even any railroads until the last 10 years of the Underground Railroad. And even so, it was even more dangerous to get on a, on a train because you could be trapped anywhere. So what, what Doug realized finally was that people were communicating mostly through their churches. Hmm. So there would be a leader within each church who would also be part of the County Anti-Slavery Society. They had regular meetings, and somehow this is how they communicated. And so there was a leader within each region, and then a sub-leader in the, in the smaller regions. And there was an agent overall in, in the county who was answering to a regional agent who was probably in Gowanda. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I, let's talk about the map a little bit because I, I, the map to me, and I really, really, really want to urge um, any listeners to go um, look at this map, and there will be a link to the map um, in the podcast show notes at the at the bottom of the page. Um, but the map was astounding when I 
found the map and pulled up the map, I must have spent about 90 minutes just looking at the map and all the various places. And uh, even within the city of Dunkirk, I found that one of the stations was uh, a, a house that's five blocks from my house that I've been passing for 30 odd years. And it was it was just stunning to me to realize that, um, you know, the Underground Railroad was just running, you know, right through uh, the area where I lived. And when you look at the map, it really covers territory from as far north as Niagara Falls to as far south as Warren, Pennsylvania. And then from the west, like you say, Erie, Pennsylvania, all the way across to Geneseo. And there are literally thousands of, of, of dots on there. If you just, you know, zoom in and you can zoom in and out on the map um, to get uh, particular areas that you're looking at. But I see that within the city of Dunkirk, for example, there's like 25 uh, 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 dots. It's color coded, um, you know, and each one of those dots has a little box that comes out of it with the history of that particular location. I mean, uh, it, it is an astounding map, really. Well, thank you so much. And it's to Nick's credit that it is so wonderful. Uh, Nick and Doug sat down for quite a while to determine what was needed. And I think that um, it really helped Doug to see all of his research as a whole, because we always teased him that he lived in the filing cabinet at the Barker Museum. So he considered himself a piece of paper with all the other papers that he had. He saw it all on a map and, and in a database, he, he said, now, now I can see the big picture, mm -hmm. how it all links together. Well, isn't it astounding that, uh, you know, um, research like that where you go into uh, file cabinets and pe pull out pieces of paper can be turned into this kind of digital thing where people like me all they have to do is go to the map service and take a look at it and all that research all that painstaking 30-year research is like uh -huh. right there with the blink of a with a click of a mouse mm -hmm. yeah. that's something nice that michelle henry did too with doug shepherd's other research that's all online now at at her website so there's even more information from Doug other than just Underground Railroad. Yeah, and Doug, actually, yes, you're right. I did look at that. He was also the first recipient of the Elijah Foote Award for yes. work in research in uh, Chautauqua County history. He did a lot about fairs. He did corner stores in Dunkirk. He, <laughs> he did. It's, it's an amazing life after after uh, retirement. And he just recently passed, actually, in March he of 2021. Did. So. We lost him last year. And he did his research right up until the end, right wow. up until almost his last, you know, few months here with us. And even after he had taken a tragic fall, <laughs> he got right up and kept going. Um, he is very much like Francisca Safran, who came here from Hungary and ended up bringing the Holland Land Company records to read library archives. Doug came here from Brooklyn and so loved the area that he devoted two entire careers to it, his teaching career and then his research career. Anything specific that perhaps we should just keep an eye out for to see that you think is, is, is unique in audiences, perhaps they're not paying close attention, might miss? Oh, yes. I, I would say um, to, to pay special attention to... Uh, something Jennifer talks about and Sandra alludes to, and that's the role of women 
in the Underground Railroad. And something that everyone refers to is the role of African Americans here in Chautauqua County. Their, um, their participation has been largely ignored because, of course, we tend to mythologize the Underground Railroad, and we want to think it was a system of, of tunnels, which, of course, it couldn't be because those collapse on people. They're not ventilated. You can't, there's no place to hide the dirt. They just, they just don't exist. What really happened was African-American communities stepped up and, and people were often hidden there. So those were, those were the people who took the greatest chance. The, the African-Americans in Chautauqua County who hosted freedom seekers. Great. Well, Wendy, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on uh, the podcast and giving us all this wonderful information. I, I think that as an event, as, a, as, a, as an historical tribute to um, uh, Chautauqua County and its place in the Underground Railroad, people are, it's just going to be an eye opener. I think it certainly was an eye opener for me. And I really encourage people to come and have their eyes opened to what was happening in the county. I mean, if they think nothing happens in this county, they should have lived 150 years ago. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. Underground Chautauqua, three freedom trails, will screen at the 1891 Fredonia Opera House on Thursday, November 10th at 7 p.m. Admission is free. Donations are gratefully accepted. It promises to be an eye-opening program. At his best, the plays of Tennessee Williams all have an operatic quality to them. From Streetcar Named Desire to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, his works all smolder in a southern haze of repressed lust, anxiety, and depression, characteristics that mix well with opera. The American composer Lee Hoiby thought so as well, and he turned one of Williams' better plays, Summer in Smoke, into an opera replete with ambiguity and missed opportunities. This year's Hillman Opera at SUNY Fredonia is producing Summer in Smoke, and I spoke with three of the opera's principal creators about these qualities. Well, I happen to have right now a trio of wonderful personalities with me to talk about the upcoming Hillman Opera. Uh, uh, number one, um, the producer, uh, Dr. Robert Strauss, who's on the voice faculty at uh, SUNY Fredonia. R Rob, welcome. Thank you. Nice uh, to be back. Yep, as always. And uh, uh, also Dr. Jessica Hillman McCord, who is on the uh, theater and dance faculty and is the stage director for the show. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
And Patrick Connolly, who is uh, one of the uh, John Buchanan's in this production of Summer and Smoke. Patrick, welcome. Thanks very much. So let's we'll have to start with you, Rob, since you're the producer and the big brains and the big boss of this outfit over at the uh, college, the Hillman Opera. Uh, and the first question I want to ask you is Summer and Smoke is an unusual title to pick uh, simply because it really doesn't have the recognition of a Donizetti or a Puccini or a Verdi or anything like that. Um, so what is the uh, driving force in picking um, this particular opera um, by uh, Lee, Ho- Lee Hoiby, I, be- I believe it's Hoiby. Lee mm-hmm. Hoiby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thanks for that question. And I, I hope my answer sounds at least somewhat uh, smart or relevant. <laughs> uh, when I'm picking titles uh, in collaboration with the conductor and the stage director, I'm always looking at, you know, for the students who've been here four years, what has their, what representative genre styles have we given them in their education? So you know, we've done a French grand opera a couple years ago and uh, last year's sort of uh, early classical uh, or early bel canto Italian. And so this year, a uh, more contemporary English. Um, but it's also looking at the students we have, mm-hmm. including people like Patrick, um, to make sure, of course, that we can cast a show. And it's looking at you know, we were so blessed all every year to have a director from the Department of Theater and Dance and trying to find something that might might appeal to them. And so Summer and Smoke is based on Tennessee Williams and Tennessee Williams, of course, um, is incredible. And as we were looking at things, there were also just sort of interesting little tidbits. Lee Hoiby visited Fredonia and had a residency here in 2010 which is the year before he died. Yeah. Um, and I keep saying it has no relation to the opera, but we know that Rita Moreno was here in 2016 uh, as the convocation speaker, and she was in the movie version. So hmm. we claim that. And then I just recently found out that our former school of music director, uh, Peter Schoenbach, was was the bassoonist in the original production. So uh, At the Minneapolis uh, Opera? Yeah. It's yeah. 71. Wow. Wow, that takes you back a few years, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot more connections than I actually thought there were. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it Although makes primarily sure- it's looking at the students that we have and who we can cast, and then also looking at what other operas we've done while they're here so that we're giving them a nice representation of different time periods. Excellent. That's, that's well... That answer is perfect, Rob. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, nice. Good I didn't reasons. even rehearse. <laughs> uh, now, Jessica, let me turn to you because, um, as, as Rob mentioned, Summer and Smoke, of course, is one of Tennessee Williams' um, more more interesting productions, has an interesting theatrical history, and also uh, the librettist for this particular opera is another American playwright, Lanford Wilson, who also has a number of uh, huge Broadway hits and has a... a, a a, a plethora of plays that he's written that are part of the American theater canon. Um, how well do you think the uh, opera uh, comes across uh, in terms of an adaptation of this particular play? What a great question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll have to think about that. It's uh, it's really a distillation. It, it, it It's primarily just quotes. There's not really any new lyrics that aren't in the play. Um, it obviously the play is far more extensive in terms of dialogue and there's there's um 
some of the characters we see more of, um, we have sort of more explanation. All the scenes are longer, but it does seem like um, what w- they've done is just sort of found the most important lines and, and kind of told the rest through the music. It's a really interesting blend to try to um, sort of take all this context that's in the play and then and sort of create this sort of emotional uh, world of it through music instead of more talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I do think the, all the important points are hit uh, and the story gets told. Um, and, and of course, music adds this extra emotional dimension. It's such, it's a play about emotion. It's a play about kind of, um, well, really, I think it's about anxiety and depression. Um, it's about relationships. And, and so much of the work of that gets, gets done by the music and, of course, the, the voices. So the, the, there's less text, but, but the world is still complete, I would say. Patrick, uh, John Buchanan is a kind of an interesting character, and I'm I'm not familiar enough with the score and uh, the opera itself to to I'm more familiar with the play. Um, how has how do you feel that's coming across in the opera from the point of view of music and character? How are you approaching that? Well, thank you for that question. And uh, yeah, I mean, John is a very difficult uh, character to unpack. We've certainly had a lot of conversations about it because. Not only is he, um, you know, he, he's got this very uh, matter of fact and, and scientific way that he approaches life. You know, he wants to think that he can kind of quantify everything and that he understands the way of the world. But there is this underlying um, striving for something greater. And I think that's why he's interested in Elma. Um, and certainly there is a very genuine aspect to his attraction to Elma. Um emotional attraction, really, that, you know, he doesn't know how to uh, connect with her really on that emotional level, but he is striving for it, you know, and he admires her for her lofty ideals and everything. So, um, yeah, it, it, the challenge with John, I think, and uh, we've talked about it a lot, is to have him not come across as a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's, it's easy to fall into that pitfall a little bit. Um, you know, with, you know, he's got this relationship with other women, with uh, Rosa Gonzalez, and then with Nelly, you know, um, but his connection with Alma, obviously, it's what really is the the bedrock of the entire play, you know, um, and this idea that they kind of cross each other and just miss each other in their ideals, two people who are meant to be together, really, but just miss each other. So, um, yeah, the, the, I mean, I think it comes across um, certainly the the challenge of that is to ground John in, you know, an honest character who's a little bit broken just in a different way that Alma than Alma is. And what about the singing challenges? Um, The, the, the uh, notes, the, the range of voice. um, How, how, how are you dealing with that? Do you find that challenging? What are the most challenging aspects of that? Yeah, well, um, the relationship, I think, between the score and the play, right? The score, um, we've talked a lot with Andrew about how, um, you know, Hoiby has these strong influences from Barber and from Minotti, uh, which kind of grounds itself in the bel canto and Italian tradition. So, um, you know, a lot of the music is very broad and grand and operatic. And 
you know, in contrast with that a little bit, the play is very realist, you know, it's, it's very grounded and it's a very accessible story, but trying to find the relationship sometimes between these really grand gestures and the, um, yeah, realism of the, the subject matter is the challenge and also a little bit of a benefit because you can, you can, um, really dig into the, uh, imagistic trends that, appear in the text that are really, I think, uh, quintessential of Tennessee Williams. Rob, let's talk a little bit about the music then, because I think Patrick gave us a really nice introduction to uh, the, the, the musicality of the opera. As as Patrick mentioned, Hoiby was a, uh, a disciple of uh, Giancarlo Minotti, and um, there's something about uh, his score from the little bit that I that heard from recordings I've, I've seen on YouTube and such. Um, it, it seems to be a very broad lyrical piece and the play itself um Tennessee Williams is what I call a hot playwright because you know all of his plays have these repressed um uh sexual tonalities underneath them and I do you think the music carries any of that in its in its construction I absolutely think that it does ah. uh, I mean there are there's these gorgeous recurring themes all throughout um, I don't know if if the cast has named them. That's the Alma theme, or that's the John theme, but they're just the the use of the 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 dissonances um, at, at his disposal that just really accentuates the the tension between these two characters, and that these these particular themes. I will sing none of them as I've not warmed up um, for this, but but they just really exemplify that kind of pulls somewhere but it never gets there and and so it's it it's a really gorgeous thick score um and i'm excited we're we're about to put it all together this weekend uh with the orchestra so i'm excited to hear uh, all of it put together and all these different colors the use of of different musical colors and textures to also represent this this tension and the pull between the two characters mm -hmm. and the push um that that both of them no do it my way no do it my way <laughs> yeah more like me we can be together no but if you're more like me we can be together uh and <laughs> as I say they so i think i think it's it's all there in this music and and each time i i hear it i've um you know as producer i don't always go to rehearsals but this past week i've been there every night and i just keep hearing more and more things that are are just so interesting and and how it heightens the characters and and helps tell the story i don't think jessica that tennessee williams ever wrote a play where any character ever gets what they want <laughs> yeah there's no resolving there's no resolving for anyone and i think yeah that's what the music reflects <laughs> absolutely and it is a very um ambiguous ending um mm -hmm. absolutely and that's very much on purpose, you we leave people with a big question mark um, as a choice. <laughs> mm. um, uh, Patrick, have you worked with a conductor yet? Uh, yes, I have. So I was actually I was in uh, the Hillman production last year, uh, Il Matrimonio Segreto. So that was that was really my first real experience working with a live orchestra. Uh huh. And, and the conductor here is uh, one of our graduates, Andrew Bizance, whom I whom I uh, knew well as a student, and he was uh, uh, quite a just a just a, a remarkably talented student. As a matter of fact, um, I worked with him on a a couple of shows. How is it working? Have you worked with Andrew so far? 
Yeah, yeah, we've spent, you know, he, um, he was here for like two weeks in September and we were able to coach through the whole thing with him and then mm-hmm. he came back um, towards the end of October and, you know, into tech and everything. And wow, it's just tremendous working with him. Like really um, just, uh, you know, obviously someone who's very knowledgeable about how to work with singers and, and communicate in the clearest way possible while still, you know, uh, being very, very knowledgeable about the score and honoring the score and everything. It's just, yeah, it's really tremendous to work with him. Yeah. Extremely uh, collaborative, which I think is so crucial. Yeah, he's, he's well, he's always been that as far as I know. Rob, you must be a... Uh, 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 a proud teacher there to have that student come back to be able to conduct this opera here. Now, you have just aged me up quite a little bit because Andrew <laughs> and I were actually at school here together as students. <laughs> so, I, so I appreciate that. Uh, that's just for men must not be working these days uh, so well. But yeah, and, and actually Andrew and I are from the same hometown, so we were in musicals together oh. back in the day. Okay. But it is great to have him back. Uh, a couple of last questions. Uh, Jessica, what do you think is going to be um, the highlight for people for this particular opera? What, what are they, what will they, what moments are really going to stand out? Well, I think, I think it's going to be beautiful to look at. We've got the projections designed by Phil Hastings, a visual arts and new media professor, um, video art production um, of the sky continually changing through the whole a performance, which is something Tennessee Williams actually asked for, and you know, put put in his lengthy stage directions. Um, <laughs> it's not always done that way, but we thought it could really add um, to the sort of experience. So I think the in Hila Selhorn, our designer, has done a beautiful, beautiful job creating this environment. It's a unit set where we see everything at the same time, but the the sky I think is really going to bring the story to life. Um, so I think it's going to be beautiful to look at. It's obviously going to be beautiful to listen to. Um, and then, like I said before, I think the perfect, yes, it will, Patrick. And I think the performances, <laughs> uh, are really, are, are, are beautiful. They're in, they're, you know, intricate and detailed and the, the story between these two people and this kind of tragedy between them. Um, I think it's really gripping. So I think it's really beautiful to watch. So I, I think people will be emotionally moved and also sort of visually, uh, really enjoy the the this spectacle but it's it's in, it's intimate but it's really beautiful and and what about you patrick what's going to be the highlight for you yeah i you know i think um just going back to talking about the accessibility of the story it really is um it, it's not the you know grand uh, spectacle in a way, in a way, there's a lot of similarities to La Traviata, that kind of dichotomy of, uh, you know, two different views on life, but without, you know, the grand dying of tuberculosis and everything. Uh-huh. But um, I think because of that, it's very grounded and uh, very accessible. I think it's coming to see it, you can really get fully invested in these characters and just kind of feel the tangibility of every little moment where they almost come together and then don't. Well, thank you. Thank you, all three of you, Patrick, Rob, Jessica. I really appreciate all three of you coming together at the same time to, to have this little conversation. Um, the Hillman Operas are always a highlight of the fall season, I know, at the college. So good luck to you all, and I uh, hope you get great audiences and uh, have a great show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Summer and Smoke will be presented Thursday through Saturday, November 10th through 12th at 7.30 p.m. in the Marvel Theater at the Rockefeller Arts Center. 
with a matinee performance on Sunday, November 13th at 2 p.m. Tickets are $25 for the general public, $10 pre-sale or $15 at the door for students. Here's the arts calendar for the upcoming two weeks. The Art and Architecture series at the 1891 Fredonia Opera House continues on Saturday, November 12th at 1 p.m. with the screening of the documentary Hopper. One of America's most recognizable artists, the documentary digs into the life of Edward Hopper and explores his art, his life, and his relationships. Tickets are $15 general admission, $10 for students. The cinema series also continues with a screening of two movies. Confess Fletch, starring John Hamm and Lorenza Izzo, is the first. This comedy mystery romp screens on Saturday and Tuesday, November 12th and 15th at 7.30 p.m. each night. The following Saturday and Tuesday, November 19th and 22nd, features the movie Amsterdam a film about three friends and a plot to overthrow the American government in 1933. Tickets are $7 general public, $6.50 for Opera House members, and $5 for students, available at the door only. The Marion Art Gallery continues its exhibition to see inside, examining prison architecture until Thursday, November 17th. See the Marion Art Gallery website at the Rockefeller Arts Center for more details. The School of Music has the following upcoming events. On Thursday, November 10th, the Fredonia Symphonic Winds will perform in the King Concert Hall at 8 p.m. The Fredonia Guitar Quartets and Ensemble will be in the Roush Recital Hall on Monday, November 14th at 8 p.m. Adam Unsworth, Professor of Horn at the University of Michigan, will play with the Fredonia New Jazz Orchestra on Tuesday, November 15th at 8 p.m. in the Roush Recital Hall, and also with the Fredonia Wind Ensemble on Wednesday, November 16th at 8 p.m. in King Concert Hall. Williams visiting professor Kyle Van Schoonover will give a vocal recital on Wednesday, November 16th in Roush Recital Hall, beginning at 8 p.m. And the Fredonia African Drumming Ensemble will perform in Roush Recital Hall on Thursday, November 17th at 8 p.m. All these School of Music events are free and open to the public. So I love this small town vibe. I live in a small town upstate New York called Fredonia, New York, so... Yeah, it's a lot like this, but our taxes are like one month worth of your taxes. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. When I moved to this town, it's like an hour outside of Buffalo. Long story, my wife is from the area. I first moved there, I was out in Main Street with a buddy. We're going in to have a couple of beers. I didn't feed the meter. And he goes, I goes, is that going to be a problem? He goes, well, if you don't mind getting Jack $7. $7? That's the fine for not feeding the meter. I'm like, I'm going to keep it here monthly, bro. I lived in New York City for 22 years. That's a cup of coffee. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you haven't bought your tickets yet to see Pete Corrielli at the 1891 Fredonia Opera House on Friday, November 11th, you're SOL. The event is officially sold out. 
I hope that won't stop you from enjoying my conversation with the former non-acting student Pete as he discusses his current career and time at SUNY Fredonia. It's the best you're going to get at this point if you're ticketless. It's real exciting to have with me right now uh, on the podcast, Mr. Pete Corielli. Pete is coming to the Fredonia Opera House to do uh, a comedy set, um, and it's going to be pretty good. And uh, hey, Pete, tickets are selling well, so you're going to have to be on your A game. I got news for you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm happy, happy to hear that people are coming out, and uh, you know, I mean, it's just nice, even even though. Buffalo isn't that far. It's nice to sometimes just be able to go right up the block and and see something fun, you know? Yeah. I adore Rick Davis, who runs the Opera House, but uh, I'm like, Rick, we're leaving so much money on the table for the Opera House if you'd sell a couple of beers in there, man. (laughs) You know? I'm like, you're the only dry theater outside of Utah in the United States of America, guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can't say that I disagree with you, but, um, you well, I mean, I know he's keeping it beautiful and all, and it really is a gorgeous place. And, you know, I suppose, you know, that kind of thing helps. But, you know, um, so anyway, yeah, it's going to be next uh, Friday. Looking forward to it. Very excited. Talking with my wife about a couple of uh you know, I got to do some inside stuff. I live probably closer to the opera house than anybody coming to the show. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. I think you could throw a rock and hit one of the windows there, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, speaking of that, you know, you you uh, obviously you lived in New York for a long period of time, but you came back and uh, uh, decided to live in uh, Fredonia. And you actually do quite a, a funny little routine about that in terms of taxes and stuff like that. Is it is it uh, is it much easier to to live here and work or it, 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 this day and age, it doesn't make much of a difference? Well, it depends. I mean, being a stand up comedian, I, I had to for me, I wanted to be in New York City. That's that's like uh, it, that's where the best comedians are or where they come out of. Put it mm-hmm. that way. So I feel like being around and watching the best work. You know, you see what the best is. Plus, there's so many opportunities to get on stage in New York City at any different level. So you could really grow. Um, but then it reached a point I've been there. I was living in the city for like 22 years. My wife is from Dunkirk. And we were kind of like I was on the road now all the time. Now I was headlining. I had done a few hour specials on TV. So now you're headlining. So I was rarely in these clubs in the city anymore. Um, and when I would go in on a weeknight to maybe you know do a few jokes, most of the guys that I started out with, guys and gals, um, they were all headlining too. So, you know, it wasn't even like, hey, well, it's good to catch up with so-and-so because so-and-so's in Milwaukee. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so then my wife was like, uh, and she had been working at the time. So when I would come home, she would have work and we weren't seeing a lot of each other. So we were both like, why don't you quit? So when I'm home, we can at least spend time together. And then she was like, let's she loves California. So she's like, let's go to California with your job. It doesn't matter where home base is as long as there's an airport. Right. So we went out to California and uh, we were out there for about a year. And it was fun, man. We rented a little bungalow. You know, we sold our New York City apartment, moved out there. But we only rented because I was like, listen, I'm dipping a toe out here. I don't know if I'm staying in L.A. And then my wife got pregnant and we, you know, had no family out there and she wanted to be near her mom. So, again, Buffalo, fine airport. I loved Fredonia when I went to school here. Um, and now where I was in my career, it didn't matter where I lived. 
<laughs> well, that's the long and short of that, Tommy. Your comedy inspiration is pretty uh, um, locked into sort of the everyday things of of life, the everyday frustrations, the uh, you know, uh, kind of things like that. You're not, you're what I guess is uh, officially called an observational comedian. Um, why did you decide to go that particular route? Any reason? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely am observational, but I definitely don't do it in like a Seinfeldy way where did you ever notice I talk about my life? Well, uh, ironically, as a comedian that like, you know, isn't well known or anything, but I was I used to you do anything for stage time. So I worked at this comedy club when I first graduated college. I worked front desk at a hotel. Then I'd go home, change, and I'd go mop and sweep the floors for free at a comedy club. And they would put me on last every mm. night. But it was a way to get on, you know, and grow. Right. And I would I would come off and I was talking to this comic once and I'm like, oh, man, it's like, you know, when I'm writing, it's it's just not clicking, at, you know. And he goes, well, stop trying to write funny. And just he goes, just for example, just tell me about your day. And I'm like, and right away I go, oh, I tried to be funny. He goes, stop, just tell me about your day. And I was like, all right, well, then I went out for lunch and I go, and I went to get a hot dog and the guy was charging a dollar 50. And I'm like, and the guy across the street was charging a dollar. I'm like, why would I get yours for 50 cents less? I can't... And he's like, there's a joke. And he goes, my point is, uh, if you write about your own life, you never have to worry about going into the club and someone else doing that stuff because mm -hmm. they don't have your life. And other people can relate to your life. And now, you know, I don't get political, but I do have a on on a live show. I'll I'll say a couple things here and there just because, you know, the elephant in the room, you know, you got to say a couple things. But right. I don't try to sway people's. I, there's too many comedians now that I feel take advantage of their position to give their opinion. And I feel like a lot of times they're getting away from the most important part of the job, which is to entertain, to be funny. You know, that's your job. Outside of that is not your job. I think that's for me. You were um, born and raised on Long Island like I was. And how much do you think, um, you know, uh, that particular area growing up influenced like how you think and 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 the the angles of plays in your comedy. Uh, you really, you know, and you ha you still have a Long Island accent. I'm sure everybody can hear that. They still hear mine every once in a while. Does that did that upbringing there play into your comic sensibility? My sensibility, yeah, and I, I think this might be a good point because for the listeners out there, this is this is a monumental moment right here, and I've been taking my time to bring it up, Tom. Oh, really? But okay. Long Island was definitely the sensibility for sure. Uh, humor wise was mm -hmm. inspiration was was what I how I am for sure. And if and it's molded me a lot. But what inspired me to become a comedian, you have you in so many. So you are so much like the spark that kind of developed that that made what that led to the career I have I swear to God Tom I swear and I'm gonna I'm gonna explain this to you you're not gonna believe this I okay. try I wrote you a letter I believe after I did the Letterman show you and did you never, yes I remember you wrote you me never that got letter. back to me bro um I, but that I, could be, I, that, I, that, now that could be true or it could be false I'm not sure about that but I remember the letter and I usually in my head well here's I I had a whole thing in my head I'm like that's because I'm really a comedian and I only took one class with him he probably only writes back to people that graduated with his full, you know. But anyway, <laughs> senior year of college, I took a class with you called Acting for Non-Majors. Correct. Yes. I remember uh, that. 
And I remember at the beginning of the class for the first 10 minutes, we would like lay on the mat and relax. And you go, you could do anything. Relax. If you fall asleep, don't worry about I was such a drinker and partier in college that I would literally at, at the night before I'd be at the bar going, well, we, we do sleep for the first 10 minutes of Tom's class. So I, I can have one more beer because, you know, like it was. <laughs> so I was, a I, you know, I played college basketball. I got recruited to come here. And when I came to visit here from Long Island, the guys on the team were just super nice. And I, I loved the place and I loved the people. And I, I fell in love with it when I came here. Right. But by senior year, you know, I was graduating with a degree in communications. Mm-hmm. Now, I had always grown up loving comedians. Me and my brother would yell out when one was on TV, comedian, you know, mm-hmm. um, and all that kind of stuff. And I loved movies and all that. And uh, so and I took your acting for non-majors for the credit. But then I, I was really getting into it. And then and I brought this up on our podcast I do with Sebastian Maniscalco. You came in one class and you were uh, you were an old man and you didn't even say you were you. I don't know. Might have even been the first class, but you came in and you just started talking to us. And I did not know it was you. And I'm telling Sebastian on the cast, I go, bro, this old guy starts talking and he's doing this whole thing. I go, and he whips off the beard. It's the acting coach, Tom. Right. And he goes, I go, I couldn't. I couldn't believe you could act on that level, bro. Right. (laughs) So um, I literally wanted to be an actor. Mm -hmm. Now, I graduated college. I went home. I told my parents, I'm like, I want to try acting. And they didn't skip a beat. They're like, we just wanted you to get your college degree. You do whatever you want with your life. I, I grew up in an environment on Long Island where everybody played sports. My mom was a teacher. My dad was an architect. And uh, uh, entertainment was something you enjoyed. You didn't do it. What? <laughs> like there was a guy two towns over who was in a Yoo-Hoo commercial. That kid was like Marlon Brando to us. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but now it seems so attainable, right? Oh, you wait over here, then you know. Ne- so I found an open mic and I went to the open mic at Hamburger Harry's. And I remember being online waiting to do it. And I'm hearing the other guys who want to be comedians. They're talking like one's going, are you going to do that Superman bit again? He goes, yeah, I tweaked it. I'm like, oh, my God, they talk about their bits. They tweak. (laughs) And I just fell in love. And then I never looked back, you know, but I'm telling you, if I didn't take your acting for non-majors, I would have graduated. And, you know, I, I even, even my first year of comedy, I went on, uh, I was, you know, I was, was, it's such an unsure business. Yes. And like I was going on uh, interviews and I got one interview with uh, Gallo Wines and it got to the point where the guy's like, yeah, you go to the supermarket, you dust off the wine boxes, you make sure they look nice. We're going to put you on a three month trial. And I was already dating my wife and she goes. Is, is this what you want to do? You know, I was like, it's not. And she's like, just, You got to just go. And I boom, you know, I never look back. So. Yeah. So I appreciate it, Tom. You you even sparked the ones that weren't full on majors yeah. in, your, in your acting thing. And everybody I know who whoever worked and was taught by you just speaks so highly of you, man. Well, you know, thank you for that. I, I mean, I, I really do appreciate that. So well, listen, while I got you here and I got you on the spot, when I was writing on Kevin Can Wait, there was another guy from Long Island who was a writer and he's he'd written a couple movies and he's really good. And we were mm-hmm. writing on the show together and we would get frustrated when we would say stuff, funny stuff. And then the head, not Kevin, he wasn't in the room. He'd be next in the other office would go, 
no, we're not going to go with that. And then some guy came along and he wanted to do a show for, you know, the actor Michael Rappaport. I heard the name. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. You've seen him in so many things. Um, you would know him if you saw him. So uh, I pitched something. They liked it. And long story short, me and this other guy ended up, I brought the guy in who I wrote with there. We co-wrote eight episodes and we're, we're, we're getting ready to film it in Canada, in Toronto. They're getting the sets ready and everything. So there's a role, like the fourth lead is a, a guy named Bobby who's a cop in Jersey. It's a funny show and stuff. And uh, we've been auditioning people. And the Rappaport goes to me. This this guy's been in everything from Copland to, I, you, you'd know him if you saw him. I wish you'd know him. But he goes, um, I think you should be Bobby, right? And uh, he, because he listens to the podcast and stuff, he goes, you're Bobby the way you are. So I was playing a show out in New York. So I met him in New York City. We got a rehearsal space and we're just going practicing Bobby, you know? And he's like, and at one point, he goes, all right, you're going to knock on the door. He's playing by this woman Bobby's hitting on. And he, he goes, I'll be I'll be her and I'll open up the door. Um, and he goes, you know, think about how Bobby would Bobby hang his hands on the doorway. And he goes, we're just having fun with it, Pete. There's no pressure here, you know. So he closes the door and I'm sitting there. Tom, I'm not an actor per se. So I'm not even, I, I'm on the door frame. To, all I'm thinking is, I can't believe I'm rehearsing with Michael Rappaport. <laughs> you know, I'm not connected at all. And then I see the doorknob opening it. In my head, I'm going, here we go. You know, it's like, and it's so hard for me to like get connected. But nevertheless, he felt at the end, he's like, we can get you there. Your, your charm and stuff. Bobby's doing bad things, but you have a charm that Bobby has. Yes. And and then um, on one particular podcast, me and Sebastian were joking about how we clean in the shower. And I go, oh, I, I put soap there and I, I just go down between and I do a a, a a quick, you know, rub. The next morning, Rappaport he emails me and he goes, Bobby would wash his balls like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, don't worry about the acting. I'll get you there. So Tom, when we have a shoot day, can I come to Dunkirk for some one-on-ones to get to get into the role of Bobby? Absolutely, Pete. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. All right. You're a beautiful man. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. Oh great. my gosh. Well, <laughs> I, you know, it's very hard to let you go, Pete, because you know, you're a great guy and 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 uh I, I just know the audiences are gonna have your high energy, you're lots of fun, and oh, thank you. people are just gonna have a good time. And like I said, I think you're yeah, let's hope you can get a sellout crowd because those tickets are rolling. They're rolling. So uh, everybody knows you're here. Everybody wants to see you. And I think it'll be a fun evening at the Opera House. So thank you for your time. I mean, yeah. Wow. Listen, and, it, and it's hey, really good to catch up. It's just so much fun. <laughs> it really is. And I'd love to see one of your shows. So I want to get you my my personal contact, too. And I listen, I just want to say for this area and for our community, you're our national treasure, bro. You really are, man. Appreciate all that you do, man. Okay, but, thanks uh, a lot. Never stop inspiring, Tommy, and good luck tonight with your show. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Right. Talk to you later. Right. Bye-bye. fun. Thank you. Pete Corrielli will be performing his stand-up comedy with an opening act by Buffalo comedian Ryan Fay on Friday, November 11th at 7.30 p.m. As mentioned, the performance is officially sold out. So do what you can to get your tickets. A final reminder. As Thanksgiving draws near, the 1891 Fredonia Opera House would once again love to hear from you about why you're thankful to have the Opera House in this community. 
November 12th marks the Opera House's 26th anniversary, and we want other people to know why you enjoy and appreciate what the Opera House has contributed to the Northern Chautauqua County region for all these years. Perhaps you enjoy the cinema series, or appreciate the Live at the Met HD broadcasts, or the Folk and Fredonia series. Whatever it is you've enjoyed and continue to enjoy at the Opera House, we want to hear about it. As we did last year, we've set up a special number for you to call in and leave your voice message of thanks for the Opera House. Please prepare your messages in advance and keep your messages about 30 seconds long so we can get in as many as possible. The number to call to leave your message is 716-608-9802. Once again, 716-608-9802. Information and the number will also be available in the show notes for this podcast. The deadline for recording your message is Friday, November 18th. Your messages will be included with the November 23rd Thanksgiving edition of this podcast. We really look forward to your contribution. And that's it for this Eastern Standard Time edition of Notes from the Isle Seat. My thanks to Wendy Woodbury-Strait, Dr. Robert Strauss, Dr. Jessica Hillman-McCord, Patrick Connolly, and Pete Corriale for being my guests on this episode. Notes from the Isle Seat is a production of the 1891 Fredonia Opera House in Fredonia, New York. For more information on any of the Opera House's events, call the box office at 716-679-1891, visit the website at www.fredopera.org, or email at operahouse at fredopera.org. Notes from the Isle Seat is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and also on the Opera House YouTube channel. If you'd like this podcast, please consider following us by clicking the follow button on our website at aisleseat.podbean.com and spreading the word through your social media feeds. If you have an arts event you'd like featured on the podcast, why don't you drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org and we'll see about featuring your event. Please try to give us a month's advance notice if possible to facilitate timely scheduling. If you have any suggestions, comments, or criticisms of the podcast, just drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org. We'll be glad to receive your feedback. Our next episode, the Thanksgiving edition, will be on November 23rd, 2022. I'm Tom Laughlin, and until then, be safe out there and be kind to one another. <laughs>